everybody and welcome to the channel. Today we want to have a uh, an open-ended discussion about prayer, the life of prayer, um, specifically surrounding the d divine office, an ancient form of prayer that we'll, we'll expand on. We'll talk about what is it, uh, what was its, its, his, its history, and um, what is its place in the life of Christian prayer. Yeah, this is part of a larger project. So this is a part from our 500-year series. Um, our parish is going to be implementing a morning prayer before Mass uh, for Lent as a way to kind of spur on uh, parishioners to start to take up the divine office, the Liturgy of the Hours, in their own homes. And so we wanted to do a video um, just to briefly kind of survey the history of it, um, where it comes from, its importance uh, for our own spiritual lives. Yeah, yeah. So maybe um, I, I know that when I was uh, an Anglican, that was my first exposure personally to the divine office. Um, I I knew that monks did something in the, in the monasteries, but um, it wasn't it wasn't always clear to me exactly what they were doing. I knew they oh they have their own little like their own little things that they do um, throughout the day, but I didn't. It never clicked with me at the time that um, that was sort of kind of the church's the whole church's prayer, right? What the monks yeah, are and that's, doing, and that's something that actually Vatican II brings out brings back to the forefront to say that the liturgy of the hours is um, not just for priests and and monks and nuns, but for the whole people of God mm -hmm. to to practice. Uh, the divine office is part of the public liturgy of the church. Yeah, yeah. And I can I can say just as a personal testimony that learning of the divine office, um, praying it, uh, was a singular moment of uh, like a serious life change for me. It changed my entire life. It changed the way that I understand prayer. Changed the way that I pray, but also even it changed my thoughts. It changed the way that I think about the Bible, the church, the mass, mm -hmm. um, my daily life. What time is even given to us for? Uh, it changed my thoughts on creation, <laughs> like, like everything, um, because you're participating in this this rhythm of prayer that is very intentional. It's very it's very well structured, and so instead of you sort of forming your prayers this is a, a way of praying a very ancient way of praying that actually forms you mm -hmm. um and it's it's sort of like the next step in your faith if you're a, if you're a catholic or just a, or a christian protestant wherever you are in your faith if you are still kind of praying just sort of extempore from the heart you know kneeling down saying your prayers and you want to do something more you're wondering like well i wish i could do something just just more in my prayer life i wish it could be a little bit more dense textured um this is this is a good place to go, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, and if you, I think, if you polled most Catholics and said, um, you know, what is the primary way that you pray outside of Mass, it would most certainly be probably the Rosary, the rosary. would be the answer, yeah. right? Um, and obviously, the, the Rosary is this great weapon of prayer for us, this great tool. Um, but the Rosary itself actually develops out of the Divine Office. The Divine Office is first, mm -hmm. and as much as the Mass is a part of the public liturgy, uh, so too is the divine office. Yeah. Um, so very generally, what is the divine office? What are we even talking about? Right. Uh, divine office, liturgy of the hours, you might hear it referenced, or you might hear, um, hear it um, daily, office. daily office. Daily prayer. Daily prayer, <laughs> those types of things. Um, just basic, uh, what is it? Um, basically, it's, it's, it's patterned prayer, so set certain set prayers throughout the day that are made up of uh, the Psalms, so from the Book of Psalms in the Old Testament. So the Psalms are part of it. Um, canticles that are um, basically poetic prayers that are found 
in uh, the New Testament itself make up some of the divine office. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's always going to be an Our Father uh, in there. There's intercessions, there's confession, uh, and then there's general prayers for petitions, for, petitions yeah. for, for, for yourself, for, for the dead, for the church, for, pe- for, for the unsaved. All those things are all packed into uh, each of these little hours of prayer mm-hmm. throughout the day. So that's the, that's the daily office. Yeah, and there's, there's set um, kind of actions rhythms, um, bodily movements too, that, that can go along with it. It's funny because if you were to, if you were to describe this to someone and say, you know, that there's a people that at set points of the day, (laughs) uh, stop everything that they're doing, you know, turn and face a certain direction and start praying, um, even prostrating and prostrating themselves and things like this, you'd be like, oh yeah, Muslims. (laughs) But what's, what's so kind of ironic about that is that it, it, it's actually Christians who did this first, obviously, because Christians come before, before Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, but Islam is actually actually borrowed a lot of what Christians were doing. This was a Christian thing mm-hmm. before it was a, an Islamic thing. So set times of prayer throughout the day is very ancient. It goes back to some of the earliest days of Christianity, um, very likely um, ap- from apostolic origin. So Maybe let's let's trace out a little bit of the history. Um, well, there's really a few different ways you can do that. You can start in like like a long time ago, like going back into Judaism or even even pre-Israelite history to talk about the development of of this um, way of praying. But there's there's sort of a New Testament way to go, just in general, where you have the apostles. There's a moment in the Gospels where the apostles actually come to Jesus after watching how he would pray and, and sort yeah. of what his spiritual life looked like. Yeah, it's in Luke uh, chapter 11. It says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Yeah, that's great. So Jesus gives them this this new way of praying, and I and it probably escapes us um, how revolutionary that prayer would have been at the time, because Jesus is asking his apostles to address God as as Father, mm-hmm. primarily as Father. Um, that's not to say that Jews didn't talk about God as like like, as, like a as father, father, like yeah, a father, yeah, like a father, mm-hmm. but there's something different going on here. Um, and you hear it all throughout Jesus' ministry too, where he says, my father and I, or the there's father. There's an intimacy that Jesus brings um, to prayer that wasn't there before. Yeah, it, where, where it's beyond analogy. Now it's at the point of an identity, that, mm-hmm. that God is father. Mm-hmm. Um, something about his identity identifies him as father. Um, so that's unique. But what's interesting in that passage too is that the apostles say, teach us to pray the way that John taught his disciples. If you remember, if you've been watching our uh, first 500-year series, especially when we talk about John, John comes likely from the Essene uh, version of Judaism. Uh, the Essenes definitely practiced, had a practice of daily prayer at set hours of the day. Mm-hmm. And so this will take us now back beyond uh, the, the before the New Testament into the Old Testament history. So let's let's maybe get into some of, some of the Old Testament history, or at least what we know of it, uh, coming up to the time of Jesus. Yeah, so the Old Testament tradition, um, well, you get from Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 7. So the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. 
we hear that Jews are to pray uh, when they awake and when they go to sleep. So it says in Deuteronomy 6, um, 7, uh, or 6, 4, uh, it gives you the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Yeah, yeah. So way back at the beginning of um, Israelite history, you have Deuteronomy and Moses telling the people to, when they rise in the morning, to say these prayers, when they go to rest at night, to say these prayers, mm -hmm. and to keep repeating them. So that's the great... Um, call of Judaism, right? Hero Israel, the Lord, thank God, the Lord is one. Yeah, if you could say that in, in Israelite religion prior to Christ, um, that there was kind of a, a, a kernel of Jewish prayer, daily prayer, it would be that, the, mm -hmm. the Shema, you yeah. know, the Hero Israel, the Lord yeah. your God is one. Yeah, and, and that's not, and, and you can go, like we say, you can go pre-Israel uh, as well, this kind of idea of, of praying in the morning and praying in the evening. Um, first off, it's practical. When you get up in the morning, right. you give praise for waking up. And when you go down at night, you give praise for having been there and then looking forward to the next morning. Um, so practice of prayer in the morning and the evening probably comes before the theology of it all. Mm -hmm. um, but the practice of, of rising up in the morning and, and, and praying and all those things, the, the Hebrews themselves got it from ancient ancestors. Yeah. Uh, the, the most ancient ancestors of the, of the Hebrews were the, uh, who we call the Horites, the Horite caste of priests uh, from ancient Egypt. And we know that um, in their major temple in Nekin, which is like dates to 4000 BC, they too prayed in the morning hours toward mm -hmm. the sun, toward the east, because uh, of course they, they held that the sun was the, the symbol that they worshipped, um, Horus, the god. And then they prayed in the evenings as well. So that practice of morning and evening is already there, uh, religiously speaking, among the ancestors of the ancient Hebrews, mm -hmm. and then it's taken over in the scriptures. Yeah, so ritualistically, there's there's a structure that kind of pre-exists mm -hmm. Israelite religion, and then once Israelite religion steps in... Yeah, um, so so the first, I would say the first structure was that morning-evening structure. Mm -hmm. um, you do get a, a second tradition that grows up in, in especially Second Temple Judaism. Um, so in the book of Daniel, we read that Daniel... Uh, opened his window and prayed toward Jerusalem three times a day. Mm -hmm. um, why is he doing that? Well, remember, uh, during Daniel's time, the Israelites were exiled. You know, their land was conquered. They were forced out of, out of Judea, and they were pushed towards the east into mm -hmm. Babylon. And so Daniel, the prophet, is looking back toward Jerusalem and praying and longing to return to Jerusalem. So this, this kind of secondary practice of... Um, praying toward Jerusalem now mm -hmm. grows up within Judaism, and this kind of three-hour pattern is there um, as well, three times throughout the day. So you kind of combine those traditions, morning and evening, um, probably east-facing is one tradition, and then three times throughout the day toward Jerusalem would be a second tradition in ancient Judaism. Yeah, and you also see it show up in the Psalms. So if you see like uh, Psalm 55, uh, verse 17, it mentions uh, praying at evening, morning, and noon. Um, Psalm 119, verse 164, not really sure if this is actually describing set times of prayer throughout the day or if he's being, or if he's poetically saying, I don't stop praying. Mm -hmm. Um, but he says that seven times a day, 
uh, do I praise thee? Right, because seven is that kind of eternal perfect number, number. Perfect number. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I don't think, yeah, I, I wouldn't say those are mutually exclusive, right? Because he's he's talking about how I don't stop praying, you know? Um, and the three times a day is probably more common. So he's he may even be poetically referencing the fact that he doesn't stop, you know? Um, you also get in a later source, now we're getting to a point where we're not sure if this is a, a Jewish source or a Jewish Christian source, but now we're creeping up into the, the first and second century AD in, in Christ's time. But you have Second uh, Enoch uh, chapter 51 verse 4 um, specifically mentions praying morning, noon, and evening. So you see that it's just, it has continued up until yeah. the time of Christ. And, and the other, the other uh, reason for this, the other impetus to pray in the morning and the evening for the ancient Israelites was, of course, the temple itself. Yeah. The temple sacrifices occurred in the morning and in the evening. Uh, we especially hear that even in the New Testament, that um, the hour of sacrifice, the hour of prayer, um, is the hour that Jesus died on the cross. Mm-hmm. So the, the ninth hour, 3 o'clock, 3, 3 p.m., would mm-hmm. be the evening sacrifice time, and that's when Jews would generally uh, pray at that set time. Yeah, and, and scholars scholars generally agree here that the older practice in Israelite religion when they would pray at these times of the day um, was to face the east. Sure. So, so they, they would they would face the rising of the sun. Um, Daniel's practice in Babylon to face towards Jerusalem is new at, at, at that time. That's that represents kind of a, um, a later development. Well, it, it, and it has to be later because again, it has to do with longing to get back to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and then they carry it on, right? So the exiled Israelites are praying towards Jerusalem, yeah. and they want to carry that on, and that's their practice. Okay, which explains the fact why when we come to the time of John the Baptist, the time of Christ, you have these ancient communities uh, that we've talked about before on our channel, um, the Essenes, um, and then which are in Judea. But then you also have the Therapeutae in Egypt, right? So these are both Jewish groups. Both yeah. Jewish groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I the only way I could really describe them would be like they're they're think monastic. They're, they're like a monastic Jewish <laughs> group, like proto monastic. Yeah. So Josephus describes the Essenes in, in, in great detail, and when he does, he actually calls their tradition of prayer and what they do, he calls it ancient. Mm. So that's at the time of Josephus, he's saying that the Essenes, their prayer life and the way that they do things is actually a little more ancient than what we do in, in Right, and that makes, it makes sense because, you know, if you look at the Essenes, they do pray towards the East. We've covered that on our, on our yeah. channel. They pray towards the East or ad orientum. Mm-hmm. Catholics will know that term. Three times. Three yeah. times a day. Um, what's interesting is that uh, the word for east in Hebrew is kadem, and that word actually means to meet. So you got to think about that for a second. Uh, what are they meeting? Well, they're meeting the rising sun. Mm-hmm. They're praying towards the east. So the word east in Hebrew, that's why it means to meet, because they would get up to meet the rising sun to then say their prayers. And the Essenes are carrying on that ancient, ancient, even Horite practice way back from ancient Egypt. Yeah. And... When you come to the Therapeutae in Egypt, you have Philo describing their practice. Their practice wasn't three times, but two times a day, morning and evening. Uh, but again, this this same group would face east. So there there is a posture here that is consistent. Um, now, what's interesting is that the the Pharisees kept the the Daniel tradition of facing the temple or facing Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. 
So if you were uh, a Jew in Judea in the synagogues, your practice most likely, if you weren't somehow connected to the Essene community as like a donor or someone who is just affiliated with that, like like the followers of John the Baptist, for instance, aren't out there in the desert with the mm-hmm. Essenes, but they have an Essene um, Christ- or <laughs> Judaism. Um, but if you're in the synagogues, your your practice most likely in your private prayers is to turn towards Jerusalem. Um, we covered in our channel as well uh, that in early Christianity, you also have this this dual tradition possibly going on because um, the earliest uh, Christian synagogue church that is found in Jerusalem is actually facing towards Golgotha. So you had some Jewish Christians, the, the new place of sacrifice, yeah, the yeah. new place of sac, the new temple. Um, <laughs> so you might have had, which I think was was it northwest, yeah, the direction, yeah. Or so you might have had that would be explained by the fact that you might have had Pharisees who become G- Jesus followers. Which we know is the case. Mm-hmm. Many priests. Who were used to facing the temple to pray, but now are like, well, wait a minute, that's the temple. That's the place of sacrifice now is Golgotha. So they might have switched it where they're praying towards Golgotha. But everywhere else outside of Jerusalem, what we find is that Christians are of the custom of facing east. <laughs> yeah, so the, the earliest uh, descriptions of any direction for prayer, it's always uh, praying towards the east. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's only that archaeological that one piece of archaeological evidence that makes us think that there was a tradition of praying towards Golgotha in Jerusalem. But um okay. So there's no evidence at this time yet in the synagogues at least of praying the psalms, of re- reciting the psalms. But we do have that in the temple. So there is psalm recitation in the temple specifically by the Levites. And you'll mm-hmm. you'll see that even in the psalms themselves. It'll give instruction on when to do this, what to say. Uh, the responses. So we know that recitation of the Psalms was not um, uncommon. Uh, we don't know we don't know that it was happening in the synagogues or not, but it's possible. Yeah. Um, what we do know is that praying the Psalms seems to have been a habit of of Christ's. Is that right? A habit of Christ's, um, and then certainly Saint Paul. So Christ first. You know, pay close attention to um, Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, and the things that he says. So the famous uh, line that he says from the cross is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he's quoting the Psalms there. Mm-hmm. Um, right before he's about to die and give up the spirit, uh, he says, I commend my spirit, which is also from the Psalms. Um, so it's it's uh, somewhat clear from the scriptures that, you know, for Jesus was on the cross for three hours. What was he doing in those three hours? Uh, well, it looks like he was praying the Psalms, mm-hmm. because it starts with Psalm 23 and goes all the way to Psalm what, 31, yeah. um, beginning and end. If you go with, my God, my God, all the way to, I commend my spirit, mm-hmm. those would be that set of Psalms um, that Christ is reciting yeah. on the on the cross. The other interesting thing there is that Jesus is on the cross during those times of prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's captured and led to Golgotha at the third hour. He's crucified at the twelfth at twelve o'clock, which is the uh, sixth hour, and then he dies at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. So those all correspond to those intervals of the day that were marked out, generally speaking, for for prayer. Yeah. And so during those intervals on the cross, Christ is praying the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Which now now that's that's at the time of sacrifice too, right? That he yeah he, at the he, three p.m. Yeah. yeah, that he bows his head, <clears throat> and that's the time of sacrifice in the temple. And in the temple, we have the recitation of Psalms. So it's, it's I guess, um, interesting to think of Jesus praying the Psalms 
almost conducting a temple service as he's going to the cross. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of, he's acting as the high priest. Well, we know that from from the, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament that yeah. Jesus was acting as high priest to offer a sacrifice. This was Jesus's death was not a mere crucifixion. Jesus's death was was a temple procession to the great sacrifice mm-hmm. at the cross where the high priest even offers even himself. himself yeah. Um so we've said before too like while while the 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 Pharisees and Sadducees would have been neglecting their temple duties to go and crucify this man on Golgotha the great irony of it all is that Jesus is actually continuing the sacrifice himself yeah. while they should be at the temple sacrificing Jesus is praying as the high priest with his arms outstretched as priests would, and he's offering himself as a sacrifice and chanting the psalms on the well, cross. And again, and this continues into into the New Testament, into the in the first century communities of the Christians. Um, Saint Paul says in Colossians three and Ephesians five that that Christians should be singing psalms to one another mm-hmm. and and praising God um, uh, with hymns and 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 songs and psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. We've mentioned before the Oran's position. So we're talking about direction. We're talking about, okay, the early Christians prayed toward the east, ad orientum, um, all facing the same direction. They also had other gestures. They prayed with their hands open, the Oran's position. We see our priests at the altar with that position still to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, But that position was pre-existent to Christianity, but it takes on the significance of the cross. Uh, Jesus on the cross with his arms outstretched, saying the Psalms, well... This is also how Christians were praying with their arms outstretched yeah. um, and praying toward toward the east and praying the Psalms. Yeah, and on the night that Christ is betrayed, um, there's that incident in the garden where he says, um, you know, come and, come and pray with me, but he, he says to them, pray that you would not fall into temptation. And it's the same phraseology that you find in the, let us not fall into temptation in, in the Our Father. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that, again, Jesus is reminding them, pray the way I told you to pray. Like that's what you should be doing while I'm off here praying, doing this thing. You guys, yeah. There's no, there's no doubt. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Lord's prayer um, is the core content of any early Christian pattern of prayer. Mm -hmm. We know that first because, um, as scholars have have looked at the texts of the early um, texts on the Our Father from Matthew's Gospel or Luke's Gospel or from the Didache. Uh, first century document, there's just slightly, there's these little variations, and there's a doxology in Matthew's version, which tells you that these communities were using these prayerfully, mm-hmm. and they were being passed down prayerfully in their ceremonies. And of course, we hear from the Didache that the instruction is to pray the Our Father three times a day. Again, there's that number three, yeah. three times a day, most likely those three prayer hours, uh, the third, the sixth, and the ninth, nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock. And those who might be just joining our channel and, and kind of stepping into these discussions we've already been having, the Didache is the a, an early first century document that is, it's called the teaching of the apostles to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the teaching of Jesus Christ to the apostles to the Gentiles. So um, I, by all accounts, Many parts of that of that writing are first century in yeah, Providence. It's the first uh, worship manual yeah. that we have uh, on record. Yeah, so it's a, it's an apostolic it's an apostolic document, and and the fact that you hear there, you know, pray the Our Father, pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day, mm-hmm. uh, is really significant. And um, some scholars like like uh, Bradshaw has has said that without a doubt. The Didache telling them to pray, pray three times a day, the Our Father, doesn't just mean the Our Father, but it also it, it's it's like pray that 
because you're already doing three hours of prayer, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the day. Right. So it's sort of get the Our Father into um, your your pattern of prayer that is already existing that you may have inherited. You know, they may have inherited from Judaism or whatever right. their their local practice was. So yeah, so very uh, very early on, the Lord's Prayer forms that core. Yeah, um, and and that goes for the Rosary as well because the Rosary derives from the Divine Office. Um, the Rosary itself, yes, you have you say the Hail Mary many more times, but the large beads are there for a reason. They're the core of our prayer mm-hmm. um, to the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the same thing is there for the Rosary as well. Yeah, and the uh, <clears throat> fun fact is that actually the Hail Mary beads, you know, those are those are actually like kind of subbing for the Psalms because right. <laughs> because when you pray when you when you're praying the Divine Office, you pray all of the Psalms. Um, whether depending on what you're using, whether monthly cycle, weekly cycle, but um, like in the monasteries, they're praying all the psalms in a week cycle, and so each one of those beads is actually a sub for one of the psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just goes to show you that that the prior practice is that Christians, the prior assumptions that Christians would be regularly praying the psalms, and why is that? So why would it be important for Christians to be praying the psalms? Well, first off, they are the words that God himself has given us. Mm-hmm. They're, they're scriptural, um, poetic prayers and hymns, so it would be natural to then pray those. Yeah. Um, they also were, the, they formed the prayer life of Christ himself. So if we're going to mimic and imitate Christ, you pray like Christ. Mm-hmm. But we also can speak of a what we call a Christological reading of the Psalms, in that when we pray the Psalms, we are putting ourselves into the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And we can pray the Psalms along with Christ. Mm-hmm. And we can try, we can begin to understand Christ's relationship to the Father. We can begin to understand um, his own spirituality. Um, because the Psalms cover the whole gamut of human emotion. Yeah. Uh, and the Psalms have a way of, 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 taking us out of ourselves. We, we have our own little petitions or things that we want to ask for or give thanks for, those types of things. But what the Psalms do is, is take us out of ourselves and bring us into a much more communal and public um, outlook on, on prayer. Yeah, one of St. Paul in the New Testament, one of St. Paul's striking verses is where he actually, he begs them to have in them the mind of Christ. Mm. Uh Jerome's Latin translation of that is the sensus Christi, the sense of Christ, Christ's way of thinking about things. And one of the ways that you can adopt Christ's way of thinking, like you said, is to pray the way that Christ prays to the Father. So I remember when I first picked up the daily office, let's step back for a second. I remember when I first picked up the daily office and I started to, to, to do it, it didn't hit me at first how profound it was. Because I didn't, I, I wasn't doing it Christologically. I wasn't doing it in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, reading the Psalms. Mm-hmm. I was reading the Psalms, and I was like, yeah, that's David's prayer when he was running away from, you know, and <laughs> like yeah. whatever the occasion was for the Psalm. Yeah, that's Moses' prayer when this was happening. Um, but it didn't feel like my prayer until I read Athanasius's letter to Marcellinus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also another really great um great book was by uh, Father Patrick Reardon. He's an Orthodox uh, priest and theologian. He wrote a book called Christ in the Psalms. And, um, and that's great. I mean, he goes through every single Psalm and shows you how every single Psalm is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's about Jesus. It's Jesus's mind. It's his thoughts um, on behalf of humanity. Right. Because that, there's so that, many... That's important. Yeah, that's there, important there, there's so many things that David is saying of his own accord, but doesn't realize 
that is, it's actually that Christ is going to take those words and make it his own on behalf of David and, on, and, and through David on behalf of humanity. You know, when, he, when Jesus is praying the Psalms, he's praying as Israel himself. He's praying as the Davidic king. He's praying as the one who's persecuted. So if you want to know what Jesus was thinking when he was hanging on the cross, Psalm 22. That's what he was thinking, you know? If you want to know what Jesus was thinking when he was betrayed by Judas, you know, where it says, well, even, even my friend who ate bread with me, mm-hmm. you know, has abandoned me. Mm-hmm. Like, you can literally go through the Psalms and find moments in the life of Jesus. What was Jesus thinking when, you know, the Father sent him? Well, this day I have begotten you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll make the, you know, your enemies a footstool for your feet. You get this conversation, literally, between Jesus and the Father. Yeah. And you you are given sort of a secret, <laughs> like, a, like, I don't know, a secret window into that discussion. And so before you know it, you're praying it now. And you're, you're hearing like how Christ talks to the Father and how the Father talks back to Christ and how Jesus takes on to himself the sins and the worries and uh, the hopes and the dreams of humanity and expresses it to the Father as that living sacrifice. And so you step into that. And then before you know it, you're, you're almost uh, participating in Christ's own well, that's mind. Exa- well, that's exactly <laughs> it. And that's why we say that the divine office is the primary way of praying for the Christian outside of the Mass itself. Yeah. Because when you pray the divine office, you are uniting yourself to Christ's priesthood Mm -hmm. and you are fulfilling your baptism. You're fulfilling your priesthood um, of the baptized when you say the divine office. You are entering into the public prayer of the church, which is the body of Christ, who is Christ. Yeah. Okay. So you are speaking in persona Christi um, when you are praying the Psalms. So in in that vein, um, Tertullian, uh, a late second century, early third century uh, church father, um, actually the father of Latin Christianity. He writes in his treatise on prayer, he says, um, those who are more conscientious in prayer are accustomed to join alleluia and psalms of this sort to their prayers, so that those who are present may respond with their endings. It is an excellent custom to present like an opulent offering, a prayer fattened with all that tends to dignity and honoring God. Um, then he goes on to say, um, we are true worshipers and true priests who praying in the spirit, in the spirit offer up prayer, in oblation fitting and acceptable to God, one indeed which he has sought, one which he has provided for himself. Mm. So again, God has provided the Psalms mm-hmm. for us to then say to him. Yeah. Um, and, and in this, even at this early state uh, stage, Tertullian is saying we are fulfilling our priesthood in when we pray the Psalms. I think that's a really big point, um, is that... I think the, the, the assumption of, of most people when they go to pray um, is that they're going to just kind of express themselves to God and to, to talk to God about how they feel about certain things. Not that any of that is bad. Um, no, it's actually really, yeah, really good. That, that's a good thing. Yeah. But it's sort of just kind of step one. Um, prayer is something that also needs to be taught to us. We don't know how to pray mm-hmm. as we ought. Um, St. Paul even says that. <laughs> we don't know how to pray as we ought, and that's why sometimes God gives us grumblings and moanings uh, in our spirit that's too deep for words. Um, when, we, when we come to the Psalms and the, divi- and the divine office in general, we're also saying to God, God, like the apostles said to Christ, teach us to pray. Mm-hmm. Show us the way. Um, I don't know what to say. And there's times in your prayer life, this is just practical advice, there's times in your prayer life where you just feel dry, dull, Um, you don't even feel any passion for prayer. You kind of, or maybe you're in a a place where some tragedy has befallen you and you're kind of mad at God. Um, 
that's and you don't feel like praying. That's where that's where something like this comes in because mm-hmm. it's something you submit to. Yeah. Um, and you force yourself. And you force yourself to do to it. To pray. To do it anyway. Um, yeah. Great spiritual director advice always says, just keep going. Yeah. Just keep praying your office. Yeah. <laughs> that's always great advice. Yeah. Um, even when you don't want to. Yeah. Because God will speak to you through it. Eventually. Yeah. I. I've had so many times where I'm spiritually dry and, and even times where I've avoided prayer where weeks at a time where I'm like, you know, I don't want to pray. I don't want you know, just, just bad times. Um, but then I would just bring myself to do it and force it myself, yep. you know, and before I knew it, I was like, man, it's just like a baptism just like washes mm-hmm. right over you. And you're like, okay, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to pray <laughs> too. And then before you know it, you're, you're, you're back in the, rhythm you're back in the, you're back in the rhythm. You're like, I'm going to go to confession. I mean, <laughs> there's yep. so many things that, that start to fall into place when you just submit yourself to do it. C.S. Lewis had a great point about this for the moral life where he said, don't, don't bother about whether or not you actually love your neighbor. He's like, act as if you did. He's like, and if you, and if you do act as if you love them, you'll, you'll find one of the great mysteries is that you'll presently come to love him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like treat someone that you don't yeah. love as if you do love them and then you will love them. Same thing with, same thing with prayer. Yeah. There's just something about our human nature yeah. <laughs> that like, if you just force yourself to do it, um, you will derive some kind of a spiritual benefit yeah. from it. And, and then the spiritual benefit then is, uh, you know, learning how to pray. Yeah. Like you said, your, your, own, your own personal prayers then, your own extempore prayers uh, will become that much greater mm-hmm. because you've learned how to speak to God. Um, not just the kind of words to say, but even the pattern of how yeah. we as Christians speak to God. Um, that it, there is such thing as that. That's mm-hmm. why we have liturgies as a church, mm-hmm. because the, the church is teaching you how to speak to our God. You right. know, other religions can speak to their God how they want to, but this is how we speak to our God. Yeah. And the divine office, the mass teaches you how to do that. Yeah. It keeps you in the boundaries of Orthodox Christian faith, because as we mentioned before too, is that if you only do extemporary prayer, and that's the, that's the, tums, the sum total of your entire Christian life, prayer life, very quickly you can fall into the danger of of making God your little bargaining partner, yeah. and 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 forgiving yourself of sins. Well, it's the God of your own mind. That, yeah, that that exactly. God is doing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you submit yourself to the structure and the outline of the divine office, um, you're within. You're you're in the boundaries. You're in the rail guards. You yeah, know? and you're going to be confessing your sin. Yeah, right. You're going to be uh, interceding on behalf of others. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll be praying the Psalms, the Our Father. All those things are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you have in the in the development then of back to the history of it in the divine office, you do have this emphasis on east facing when you come to writers like Tertullian, like you mentioned. Um, you have Clement of Alexandria, you have Origen also of Alexandria, mm-hmm. Cyprian of Carthage. So this is widespread. This is different geographic parts of the world, but all of them are are kind of saying the same thing. They are, um, and especially with Hippolytus. Um, in his apostolic constitution, which which is or apostolic traditions, right it, it, from Rome, um, so you get a, kind of an early glimpse of potentially the Roman tradition, and in there he's already mentioning the third, sixth, and ninth hours, mm-hmm. and then he even mentions around cockcrow. So there's a, f- a fourth <laughs> like hour that's creeping in there uh, where they're praying, and he's ascribing meaning to these hours. You're like this is the hour that Christ was crucified. This is the hour that this happened. This is the hour that this happened. Yeah, very so. So you have this kind of three plus two pattern going on, especially by the time you come to the third century. You have kind of the personal morning prayer that you would do when you rise. Mm. Then you have those three uh, important hours of the day, and then you have your night prayer before you you go to bed. 
Um, and the morning and the evening uh, prayers were always associated with the, the rising and the going down of the sun, mm-hmm. which um, somebody like Clement of Alexandria from the late second century, um, he tells us that it represents the resurrection, yeah. that the rising of the sun, the ending of the sun, the death of Christ, right? But then his resurrection again. So th- that daily cycle of morning and evening were important times for the earliest Christians. Yeah. And then adding that to the already important three hours of uh, prayer, the uh, nine o'clock, 12 and, and three o'clock. One of my favorite hours is actually the, the, the night office. I love Compline. I love... Yeah so, yeah, so it's called Compline. Yeah, I love that it is focused so much on death. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was ever um, a, a devotional practice that, that gets you to focus on the momentum mori, <laughs> it's, it's Compline. I mean, it starts with the words, you know, grant us a restful night and a peaceful mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There, well, there, there's, there has never been a saint who's commented on how to be a saint without commenting on um, recollecting, being having death at the forefront of your mind. Yeah, because then you know how to live. Because then you know how to live. Mm-hmm. Every, every saint <laughs> speaks like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Compline is a great way to, to orient yourself toward, toward death. Yeah. And then by saying that at night, when you wake up in the morning, thankful that you've woken up in the morning, you know how to live through that day. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, this is happening just so people understand too. This isn't um, to say that Christians are running to the church, you know, to go and do these things at this period. This is something that is happening in the home. This is a this is a home piety. Yeah. So at a time when we're so focused on the mass, right, on Sunday, and we're having debates about it and wars about it, and the traditional what Latin form mass, the mass should take, right, yeah. all those things. Catholics have to do a better job at home everybody mm-hmm. included, the domestic church needs to be repaired first. Yeah. And and the way to repair the domestic church is the divine office. Yeah. This is your public liturgy in your home. Yeah. Um, and you're fulfilling that priesthood in your home, and it's an extension of the Eucharist on Sunday. There's something there, too, about um, how the modern world has sort of infiltrated all of all of our minds uh, and our hearts, because we tend to make this sharp distinction between the secular and the sacred, between church and state, between this, between that. We make these false dichotomies in our life. And um, and I think it, it stems from this right here, the not having a home piety and relying on piety to be in the church, you know, so that you've already divided mm the home from the church. Like the church is the place where it's like all holy stuff. And, and it's like, Oh, Hey, Hey, be yeah. quiet. You know, do, do your sign of the cross. Make yeah. sure you, you know, you genuflect and all this stuff. But then you go home and so you're watching the bears all day or you're, you know, you're doing this, that, and the other thing or <laughs> whatever, right. Right. um, carousing or, you know, wasting time sitting on your phone. There has to be a synergy in the true, in the life of a true Christian. There has to be a synergy between the house and, and the Lord's house, right? So let's take let's take uh, some chapters out of the out of the page of the early fathers. So yeah. Origen Alexandria yeah. writes about um, the home. With regard to place, Origen of Alexandria says, we should know that every place is rendered fit for prayer by one who prays aright. For offer sacrifice to me in every place, says the Lord, quoting Malachi. And I I desire that men pray in every place. First Timothy from the New Testament. But to arrange the performance of prayer in quiet and without distraction, each person should select, if possible, what one might term the most appropriate place in his own house, and so to pray. 
beyond the general examination of the place, he should consider whether any law has been broken or anything contrary to right reason has been done in the place in which he is praying. Otherwise, he, may, he might make not only himself, but also the place of his prayer, such that regard of God might shun it. Mm. So it's a home oratory. <laughs> it's a home oratory that Origen is telling the Christians of the third century to make sure you're setting up in your homes. But wherever you set it up, make sure nothing awry has gone in, gone on in that place. Keep it sacred. Keep yeah. it holy. Keep it sacred. Keep it separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on to say, and invite other Christians to that place with you. Because again, Christians are being persecuted in his day. Mm-hmm. So they, they're still underground a lot. So if you're inviting people to that place, he says, make sure... You're inviting people and angels, not evil people and demons, because you don't want mixed company. Yeah. So sacredness of place still very important, very important even to the earliest church. Yeah, yeah. In your the, home, that sharp division between uh, domestic and ecclesial, between the sacred and the secular, has horrible ramifications even for the moral life, because mm-hmm. you can tend to think that the minute you walk through the doors of the church oh, you know, it's holy time, and the minute you walk out, it's secular time. And you can even divide... The, the human heart is very tricky. I mean, we're, we, we like to trick ourselves, you yeah. know? Like, we like to make it so that we make compromises for ourselves. Um, so cultivate... Cult? <laughs> as in the cult of Christianity. Cultivate in your homes uh, liturgical piety. And there's a great movement going on right now that, um, and it's not even just in Catholicism, it's in like high forms of Protestantism too. Like you'll see Lutheran pages and and Anglican pages, but there's a lot of great Catholic Facebook pages where Catholic families are sharing their home altars Mm -hmm. and home oratories. I've seen some crazy stuff, man. (laughs) Like in some people's basements, they literally just made out an entire chapel. Some DIY chapels going on in people's homes. Which is beautiful and, and it's it, so like the early church and you, well well the early church was doing that uh, we had an episode where we showed those those ancient roman little shrines and homes yeah. christians most likely adopted those little shrines to the gods for themselves mm-hmm. but anyway we know the eastern orthodox practice this in their homes they have icon corners, icon corners yeah. that they set up in the home as a holy space where the family can pray mm-hmm. um so we would encourage that among catholics in their in their homes yeah set up little oratories, little chapels in your homes yeah. uh, to where you can pray with your family. There's even archaeological evidence um, contemporary to the time that we're talking about. Third you know, century-ish. Third century, fourth century, fifth century, where Christian homes have a cross carved onto the east wall of the home to mark out uh, the direction of prayer for the family. Um, so, I mean, right there, too, is is an early form of kind of what you can do in your home is Put a and, cross and remember, up on the wall. Yeah, and remember, you know? the earliest Christians didn't have a choice between secular. Right. Or, <laughs> most of the Christianity was happening in their homes. In their homes, yeah. In their homes, and then when the you know when they were tolerated, then the basilicas were being built, and the church, the public spaces were being built, and so then there you have this separation. But um, it was all in one for the earliest church. Mm-hmm. And why did they have such success? Mm-hmm. We wonder. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because they had a, a firm <clears throat> foundation in their homes. Of Christian piety, but even the, even in the raising of children, I love that you use the word piety because even even in um, raising your children, you know the whole idea of piety is is not just you know like gestures, but there's an internal attitude of piety, of order, of peace, mm-hmm. of hierarchy. Um, if you have fathers in their homes, fathers and husbands cultivating a life of of prayer in the home, where everyone in the family needs to attend either, you know, 
morning prayer or evening prayer or compline or whatever it is, whatever it is that works for your family schedule. Mm-hmm. If everybody is coming together in one place in the home to pray a set, you know, standard of prayer and then to add their own petitions to it. Um, not only are you cultivating a life of prayer and piety amongst your children, but you are, you are cultivating a sense of hierarchy in the home as well. That mm. dad is priest, you know, like mom is like a deacon, you know, and the children are, you know, like the altar servers. And, um, literally, I mean, when, when we've prayed before, like with my, my kids, I, you, you handed the censor, we, we do incense, you handed the censor to my son and he was sitting there and he's swinging this, the censor <laughs> the while, while we're praying the <laughs> Psalms and, and it was, but it's beautiful. And, and yeah. you could see that he himself was watching. He was focused. He's yeah. focused. He's he listening. And so focused. it's good for training your children in righteousness. But, but well, it's great. But you, you mentioned gestures though, too. So little Eli, your son was, was so focused and he was going, man, he was just that gesture yeah. of swinging that censor was so important. Another piece from Tertullian, he talks about you know posture and gestures and prayer. Mm-hmm. Again, the modern Christian, for whatever reason, has been trained to think that prayer is internal and just of the mind. Christ, true Christian prayer is of the body, and that's why we're talking so much about east-facing, right? The direction you're praying in, your body has to be oriented towards something. Mm-hmm. So Tertullian, on his treatise on prayer, he says, um, The custom received is that on the Lord's Day of Resurrection alone, we should um, uh, avoid not only this, but every attitude or activity of concern, postponing business matters as well, so that we might not yield to the place the place to the devil. The same is true uh, in the period of the Pentecost, which we likewise mark with the dignity of rejoicing. He's talking about kneeling, so you don't you wouldn't kneel in his day mm-hmm. on those uh, certain seasons. But on an ordinary day, he says, who would entertain a doubt that he should prostrate himself before God, especially as we enter into daylight? So the first of our prayers of the day. On fasting days, likewise, and station days, no prayer is to be observed without kneeling and the remaining postures of humility. For then we do not only pray, but beseech and make satisfaction to the Lord our God. Mm. The body is making satisfaction to God by kneeling, by showing humility to the Lord. Mm -hmm. The gesture in and of itself is holy and counts for reparation to God is what Tertullian is explaining. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a a general cultural gnosticism um, that has prevailed in in the West for for quite some time now, a couple few quite a few generations, and it's so harmful um, to the proper development of the flesh of, out nos- of the spiritual. Out. Yeah, so gnosticism would just be in our context would be an overemphasis on the spirit as opposed to the flesh, where the, the flesh is sort of inconsequential to who you are, what you're doing. Right. Um, we even see this show up, and this is why you have, like, in the LGBTQ movement and stuff, you know, you have this this separation of, of the body. Yeah, I'm not biologically that. The bi- right. My biology doesn't define who I am. Right, my mind does. My mind does. That's Gnosticism, yeah. uh, to pretend as if the body is inconsequential to your identity, but that runs so contra- contrary, not only to biology and to science, but... but to Christianity, it, it runs so contrary to the incarnation of Christ. Um, if, there, if if we learned anything about what what God thinks about the body, we learned it when Christ became a man. Mm-hmm. That God blesses material. I mean, even when Jesus healed people, right? He 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 took mud, and, he took dirt in his hand, he spit in it, he made mud, and then he rubbed it on the blind man. Yeah. Why did he do that? Yeah. Why didn't he just go like, "Hey, you're healed"? You know, he used physical material. You know, to do, and then and then he doesn't just say, "Hey, get together and think about my body and think about my blood." He says, "Here's my flesh and here's my blood right here. Here's the bread and wine." Mm-hmm. Um, 
here's the water, go baptize. And, and, and you have to be baptized, you know? There's physicality to the Christian religion that can never be stripped of it without stripping it of its, of its content. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's why it's troubling when you, you, you hear Christians say, well, I, you know, I don't go to church, or I'm, I'm not really religious, or, you know, I'm, I'm more just spiritual. But God knows my heart. God you know? knows my heart. That, yeah. That's not Christianity. It's not. That's something else. Yeah. Your outward, your outward actions, but your body itself matters, mm -hmm. and what you do to it matters. Mm -hmm. This is why it is a big deal if you're, say, fornicating, like, before you're married. That's not even just a... A moral issue. It's 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 literally a liturgical issue. Right. You have you have um, committed an act of impurity that now you're taking to the Lord's altar. Mm -hmm. You know we can't we can't throw all of that out. That that stuff that stuff is not abolished in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. So all the more should we so be again, living to a certain standard. We were, standard. We were saying that the divine office trains our minds how to pray. It also trains our bodies. Yes. How yeah. to pray. It creates yeah. a synergy between between body and mind. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're, it makes you sort of this fully integrated Christian. Yeah. When, when fully integrated Christian, but also fully integrated church. Yeah. Your church, physical church, and your physical mass and liturgy, mm -hmm. and your domestic church and mm -hmm. your domestic liturgy come together in the divine office. And that's what happens when we come to the time of you know the 4th and 5th centuries, where after Christianity is first legalized um, under Constantine, but then under Theodosius, we Emperor Theodosius, we have Christianity has made the official religion of the Roman Empire. Um, it's at this time that we start to see not only the domestic offices uh, in, in the homes, but now we start to see what's called the cathedral office. Do you want to flesh out a little bit what we're talking about there? Yeah, so the cathedral office is... Um the practice of going to the church on a daily basis for morning and evening services, these office services. And that really does begin, uh, we hear it first time in the, in the fourth century mm -hmm. in the church. Um, so being, so those two offices are added kind of to the public liturgies of the church. Mm -hmm. You had the three prayer hours, you had um, the mass on Sundays, but then you have these morning and evening official services um, take a prominent role in the public liturgies of the church. Mm -hmm. And see, for Christians, um, you know, prior to uh, the Constantinian era, they had to hide, you know, they, <laughs> for the most part, if they used buildings that weren't church, that weren't uh, homes, they were renting them, mm -hmm. you know, so there wasn't like there's the Christian church building, you know, it was worshiping in the home. So this is the first time where Christians have buildings, basilicas, that they can do something with. Yeah. It's the first time they can express their liturgies publicly. Yeah. And so what you see at those cathedral offices are psalms that are selected, right? Mm -hmm. So you have selective psalms that are being said for morning that are appropriate to the morning, mm -hmm. selective psalms that are being sung in the evening that are appropriate to the, mm -hmm. to the evening. And again, all encapsulated around... The, the Lord's Prayer as the, as the central core to those offices. Yeah. And that continues up through the Middle Ages. Yeah. So, all the way through um, to the... So in um, the pre-Vatican II church, you had um, eight offices, uh, eight hours that were, that were said. Um, Vatican II um, suppressed matins, and matins would have been like the midnight office um, of the church. So in the modern church after Vatican II, you have five major offices. You have what we call the Office of Readings. Um, you have the uh, Morning Prayer. You have Midday Prayer, which includes then the three, right? You then have Evening Prayer and then Compline or Nighttime Prayer. Mm -hmm. So you have five major offices or five offices in the in the modern Catholic Church. Um, so even though they suppressed matins and kind of combined some, 
the push of Vatican II was to get the laity involved once again in the divine office, knowing that the earliest church of the earliest centuries, they all practiced mm-hmm. these hours and prayed at, at, at these hours. Yeah. So that was the push of, of, of V2. And it's coming from a good instinct because there is something that is lost. I mean, um, there's a reason why I said that the first time that I learned about the divine office was when I was an Anglican. You know, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's because the Anglican Church, during its own Reformation, um, it consolidated a lot of the offices into— um, and they have they have a huge emphasis on the morning and evening prayer. Uh, so in the Book of Common Prayer, which is the the liturgical book of the Church of England, they have it in there. It's morning and evening prayer, and every Anglican has a Book of Common Prayer mm-hmm. on their shelf. And every uh, pious Anglican is accustomed to praying morning morning and evening prayer in their homes, but then also on Sundays. Even well, even to a fault, I was going to say there were there were some uh, many many decades in the Anglican Church, um, in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, where the primary public liturgy was morning prayer. Yeah. They would go to Sunday services and it would be morning prayer and then attached to it would be a Eucharist <laughs> instead of having the full mass. Mm-hmm. Okay. So almost to a fault, but that's how um, ingrained in the Anglican identity morning and evening prayer became mm-hmm. um, for them. And that was a that was a Benedictine practice. Yeah. Um, that's a Catholic practice. That's a very early church practice. Yeah, and that, that's that's a good thing to bring up, is, is that it is a Benedictine practice, because that's from Benedict of Nursia, so St. Benedict. Um, he, you know, he, he gathers around him a monastic community uh, at a time when the church is going through, going through a rough time, <laughs> going through a rough time morally. He's not happy with what he's seeing. And so he... He gathers this community. He writes his rule, and again, it is it is all about labor, prayer. You and, know, and we have to we also we also have to remember that we th- we think of monks and nuns as like a special clergy. ordained clergy people. Right. The earliest monks and nuns were not ordained; they were lay people who fled to the deserts mm-hmm. to live a life of prayer. Yeah. Um, they weren't always ordained. It they would was, need it, priests to come and give them the sacraments because exactly. they weren't priests. Right. They yeah. were they were laypersons because the church was already in the practice of practicing the hours of prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, today it, mon- monasteries, convents, they're praying um, seven hours a day, um, depending on their constitution. Maybe mm-hmm. the eight, the formal uh, former eight, maybe the seven, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes, they are doing that, but again. It is also for the layperson in their homes yeah. to be praying, and and this problem is perennial. It's not something that's new. Where laity are are pretty shabby at doing at doing this in their homes uh, and relying on the church or the monks to do it for them. Um, you even find in the early sermons of Saint John Chrysostom, he says he he quotes his congregation and he says, "You'll say to me, oh, but that's for the scripture reading and prayer. That's for the the men on the mountain. Yeah. I'm a man of the city." And he says, "All the more mm-hmm. do you need to be praying." Because they're, you know, in a place of solitude and sanctuary and contemplation, you are in the midst of the battle. Um, how could you be? How could you be in the midst of the battle without your armor? Um, so, so that goes to show you that it was going on back then too. Yep. So we shouldn't get down on ourselves in a way of saying like, "Oh my gosh, like the whole church has fallen apart." The, the, there wasn't ever a pristine time where everybody was doing this perfectly. But we're always we're, we're, we're we have to respond to the upward call of God in Christ. We we have to keep pushing forward. And I think this is this is a blind spot, uh, especially for the modern church, where uh, home piety has really fallen apart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the recovery of home piety, I think is, the divine office is definitely the, the best place to start. So good volumes um, for 
uh, you know, our parishioners. Uh, first, I, in, in our services for morning prayer, so Father uh, Tom is going to be implementing morning prayer during Lent, mm-hmm. right before the 1030 uh, Mass, um, probably from Christian prayer. It's a volume called Christian Prayer that has the daily office in it. Mm-hmm. And we'll be praying that as a way to spur on the domestic church, as a way to help our, our parishioners learn the divine office, learn how to pray it, and then take it home with you to then start praying in your homes as a Lenten practice, but then perpetually yeah. throughout your life uh, uh, devotionally there. So you have uh, Christian prayer. You can buy on Amazon, wherever you shop for books. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the full Liturgy of the Hours. Yeah. It's a four-volume set. I know you have the four-volume set. Um, Liturgy of the Hours. So Liturgy of the Hours is, yeah, four volumes. Christian Prayer is is literally one volume. It's an abbreviated version yeah. of those four volumes. Mm-hmm. So for someone who's just getting started, Christian Prayer is, is a pretty good place to start. The um, the only issue that I would like critique about that one is that there still is some flipping that has to happen. Like you do have to like in the middle of the hour flip to something and then flip back, uh, so, which sometimes for people who's starting out that can be a little bit like, I don't know, scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other options too, right? Yeah. So you have like the Little Office of Baltimore. Little Office of Baltimore you could purchase, which has the uh, the former eight hours. Yeah. So that's prayer. that's a great volume because it's it requires very little flipping. You only have to flip for one of the prayers, the proper. But but other than that, I mean, as you're, as you're going through, it's just straight through con- consecutive, and it's through every office. So yeah. it's... it's um, so a nice the, volume. The other one I use um, during Advent a lot is the Little Office of the Blessed Virgin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great volume for the for praying the Divine Office. You can get it online. Great um, at Christmas time. Great yeah. at Christmas time. Um, other one would be the Ordinariate one. So I mostly pray the Ordinariate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Divine Worship Daily Office. And that's the uh, Catholic Ordinariate's uh, prayer book for the offices, uh, written in high, Eng- uh, high uh, liturgical English. Um, but a beautiful, beautiful volume, and that's the one I mostly use. Yeah, I'm comfortable with. Yeah. You can also go online. Divineoffice.org is a Catholic site. Uh, Universalis.com, I think it's .com. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll put it up on the on the on the video. But um, you can say these online as well. Yeah, right. Bring it up on your phone. You don't have to buy a book mm-hmm. whatsoever. So it's online as well and very easy to um, to access. And there's apps too. I, I know there's plenty of apps. If you just look mm-hmm. up like the Divine Office, Liturgy of the Hours. Yep. If you just type that into like your app store, it'll come up with all kinds of stuff, and you can download it. And they even have ones that will like pray with you. Mm-hmm. So you can put your headphones in, you can and you can pray back and forth. If that can like that's a that's actually that's a good training ground. Yeah, that'll train you first to know like what the heck is this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you're used to it, you're like, okay, I'm ready for a book. And then you can skip. You know, you can jump up to the book and then once you're at the book you're like you know what i'm ready for liturgical english now you can move up the chain you're like all right i'm going a little off i'm going to latin or i'm yeah yeah exactly so there's um there's all kinds of volumes out there that you could use if you're ever confused about anything or or any of the volumes that we've mentioned um you can shoot us a message we'll try to answer your questions as best we can Mm -hmm. but i think um this is a good this is a good setting at least uh for getting people started to thinking about the divine office um it's importance um, maybe, maybe to, maybe to take, if you're praying your rosary three times a day, well, why don't you pray it once a day? Maybe now sub in two of the divine office. Mm-hmm. Um, we gotta, we gotta get back or to the Angelus. Like if you're praying the, yeah, maybe take one of those Angelus and do a divine, divine office instead Yeah, for one of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we definitely have to respond to the call. Not, not only of Vatican II, but I mean, this has been a perpetual call. I mean, throughout the church's history, calling the, the laity to participate in this, in the prayer life of the church. Yeah. Um, so we'll be doing that, uh, throughout, 
throughout Lent at our parish, and uh, we do hope that uh, those of you who are local to Chicago will join our parish uh, as we pray that before each Mass. Yeah.